Now for our sermon uh, by Mr. Curtis Wiley. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone on another beautiful Sabbath day. So as you can see, the message today is entitled, A Pharisee and a Tax Collector. And so I kind of feel like we're beating up on the Pharisees today. But I want to just start out with saying that although in our Bible study today and today there will be discussions of the Pharisees and not the most positive light, we have to remember all of us have a Pharisee inside of us. All of us are human, have carnal nature, have pride, greed, arrogance that's hidden within this human clothing that we have on. And so I did pick a parable today to bring to you. Let's go to Luke, the 18th chapter, and we're just going to get into it. And I will say that I, in the last few years, have really probably appreciated the parables of Jesus probably more than I did in the first, you know, few years that I really started studying the Bible. And a lot of that is, and maybe you can relate to this, who doesn't like a good story, right? As we get older, maybe we start identifying a little bit more with, you know, you have a story, you have contrast, you have characters, and a lot of these parables... They're deep, they're multi-layered. It's not always real obvious exactly what Jesus is getting at or what the person who's telling the parable is getting at. But these parables that Jesus teaches us, that, that, that he presents to us to teach us his ways, have ways of grabbing our attention and identifying us with a particular phenomenon, a particular experience of a character and things like that. So we're going to get into this today, and I'm just going to read the parable. It's in Luke, the 18th chapter, verse 9 through 14. Jesus, he says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. And so the context of this setting, or of this parable, we know that it's in Luke the 18th chapter, and Jesus just before this gave another parable, often known as the parable of the persistent widow. And he's talking in a lot of ways about prayer, and the different types of prayer that people would give. And in this parable, Jesus decides to essentially present to his audience the most, I guess you would say, as far away as you can imagine characters, a tax collector and a Pharisee. A Pharisee was the epitome of 
of course, what righteousness was during this day and age. And a tax collector was the exact opposite, was a sinner, was someone that was considered, you know, hated by many people and probably for a good reason to some extent. And the setting, of course, the location that this was happening at was the temple of God. We see that it's in Jerusalem, it's in the temple, and the temple is the place that we know historically God has chosen to place his name. And we remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to her where she says, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so you have this setting here in Jerusalem, here at the temple, where God, according to most people's belief, is where he placed his name and these two completely contrasted character, characters. So I want to go over both of them in each term. The first one, of course, the Pharisee. Now it's clear from the very beginning that Jesus' words and the context that he was trying to address those who had a self-righteous attitude and an unhealthy trust in oneself and their beliefs and their conduct of life. The parable actually begins, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And that word despised others, that phrase is almost, you could retranslate that. You look at the Greek, disregarded these individuals. They looked down upon others because they were up here and other people were down here. Now I want to note something because I think it's easy for us just to think that this is just inherently how these individuals were. That they just somehow inherently were, uh, you know, if you were Jewish back then, that you were just self-righteous. And that's just not the case. I actually was reading this uh, background commentary by Craig Keener. He's a New Testament historian. And he writes, Jewish people considered it pious to thank God for one's righteousness rather than taking credit for it oneself. The first hearers of this parable would not think the Pharisees as boastful but as grateful to God for his piety. So Jesus is dealing with learned behaviors, learned mindsets. And we see that he knew that this mindset that the religious elite had actually blurred the reality of what true righteousness was. So as we read this story here, we have to ask the question, you know, what does his prayer, what does his demeanor, this Pharisee's demeanor and prayer, what does it reveal? We know it reveals that he has a trust in his own righteousness. It says that he stood and prayed thus with himself. Now there is some debate on exactly what this Greek phrase means. When we read that passage, he stood and prayed thus with himself. But after looking into it, and I've looked at some commentaries, and I've looked at different translations, one way that you could say that this phrase is trying to mean is, is in another way that is translated by the New English translation, the Net Bible, he stood and prayed about himself like this. And we see that's what this Pharisee does. His prayer is all about himself. What's absent in this prayer is revealing. There's no mention of the characteristics of God. He never hints in any way at his dependence, although he does thank God. And it's opposed to what we find 
in another section of the Bible, the model prayer. So let's go to Matthew, the sixth chapter, and let's read what we all know as the Lord's Prayer and just look at Jesus' prescription of how one should pray. And Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13, we've all read this many, many times. We've said this prayer. We could study this prayer and analyze it for weeks on week, weeks on end. But Jesus says in Matthew, the sixth chapter, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in this manner, verse 9, therefore pray. Let's just think and look at the characteristic of this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen and this was the first scripture I probably ever memorized in my life was when I was in high school and maybe some of you guys can relate to this me and my football team would pray this prayer before every football game and it just became memorized in my mind and I didn't internalize it back then but I want us to notice the characteristic of this prayer in contrast to the Pharisees prayer notice the dependency that this prayer shows on behalf of the person praying Hallowed be your name, your kingdom. We see there's a clear acknowledgement that daily bread is provided by oneself. No, but by God himself. There's an acknowledgement of sin and an acknowledgement of the possibility of being tempted and how we are dependent on God himself to help deliver us from the one who tempts. And there's a focus on God's power and God's glory. Totally, totally different than what we see when we go back to the Pharisees' prayer. The only time he mentions God is at the very beginning to thank him for how good he himself was. That's the only mention of God's name. His focus was not on God's attributes, like we just read in the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, but on his own characteristics, his own attributes, how he himself was set apart from other people. And by doing this, he used the behavior of, of other people as the standard of his righteousness. We read, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as mentioning the tax collector, the other individual that is in the temple praying. I fast, in verse 12, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. And During this time, many of you may know this, but Mondays and Thursdays, you know, for the religious zealots and the Pharisees, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And it gives a little context to when we're reading you know, another parable, the parable of the, the wineskins where these people come up to Jesus and say, why do John and his disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? Well, he's referencing that tradition of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. 
This Pharisee is citing all of his outward characteristics that in his mind showed that he fulfilled the requirements of the law. But unfortunately, he was uplifting himself and making himself the center of the prayer and not God. Now, many of us probably know a lot about Pharisees. We probably read about it. We study the Bible. If you're reading the Bible, you can't get away from this group of people known as the Pharisees. They pop up all throughout the Gospels. The Apostle Paul himself is one of them. The Pharisees were a religious sect that had many, uh, you know, in, in their minds, they were the only true righteous ones. In fact, Josephus says during this time, it doesn't seem like that many, but there was around 6,000 Pharisees during the first century in the context of Jesus here in uh, the, you know, the, the land of Palestine. Their focus was the law, strict adherence to the law, and their actual name Pharisee comes from maybe a Hebrew word that means separate or separatist. They wanted to be separate from the rest of the world. Now, inherently, there's nothing wrong with that. We as Christians, we want to be separate as well. We don't want to be a part of the sin of the world, a part of the world, but we know that it's not because we're trying to be elite, we're trying to be better than other people, but we're focusing, of course, on Christ. But we've all read Matthew, the fifth chapter. Let's go there real quick. This is a traditional verse that we've read so many different times and studied it. I just want to read this again. Matthew 5 Verse 17 through 20, we read, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we've read this so many different times, and it's an example that we've shown that Jesus, he's not opposed to the law, unfortunately, like so many have assumed. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to uphold the law, to fulfill it, of course. But the last verse is what I want to focus on, that conclusion there. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I imagine that the audience thought, how in the world are we going to do that? They're the most righteous people there are. Every waking moment is focused on the law and making sure they're adhering to the law and they're observing it. They go out of their way to make sure that they're observing the law. And you're telling us that unless our righteousness exceeds their righteousness, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus takes the group that in this day epitomizes righteousness and tells those who are listening, including us, that our righteousness must exceed theirs that must have sounded very daunting very very daunting but as we see in the context here Jesus would go on 
and he would explain what he meant. We would see in the Sermon on the Mount that he would show the full intent of the law, and he would magnify the law to include the spiritual intent. As was mentioned earlier, the circumcision of the heart, that we keep the law from the spirit, and it results in the outward expression of it. We know that that is something that unfortunately many of those Pharisees got away from. So much of what they emphasized, of course, was the strict adherence to the law. But if we read Jesus' words in the context and how he talks about the Pharisees, it's clear that somewhere along the lines they got off track. And they stopped focusing on the true intent of the law all along as Jesus revealed in places such as the Sermon on the Mount. They seem to have moved away from the intent and focused rather on who did it the best. They lost track of what the intent of the law was, that in, in, in the end it was the expression of love for man and love for God. And I think that every single one of us can do that as well, and probably have. I know I have. I know there's no doubt that I have because the Pharisees did something that all religious traditions have done several times over. They add to it. They add man-made traditions to it. And we know the Pharisees, Jesus said not one jot or tittle. Obviously, he was trying to make sure his audience knew what he meant because during this time, when you said the law, the law, in a lot of people's mind, included the written law, but also the oral law. So jot and tittle, the smallest marking of, of, of you know, the Hebrew, would be referring to not the oral law, not the tradition, but the written law, whom at this time the Pharisees put on equal authority as the written law. All of us have done this, I believe. Every tradition you can think of. We look at Christianity from the Catholic tradition, the Protestant tradition, Baptist tradition, Methodist tradition, even the Church of God tradition. We start adding to what righteousness is on top of the Bible. Do it this way. This is the manner. This is the structure. This is the hierarchy. And we start at some point along the lines, we look back and we realize that what we're doing is, is we're interpreting the truth of God or what we think is the truth of God and the scriptures through the lens of our own tradition. And it becomes a race almost in our minds, even if it's subconsciously. Even if we don't actually say that there's an oral law in our church, and I'm not pointing this church, but in, in church in the 21st century, I think subconsciously we can create an oral law by our traditions when we start emphasizing those things as being just as important as actually letting go and seeing what the true scriptures have to say. So let's move on to the next individual, the tax collector, also known, we see the New King James Version, which is what I'm using, calls this individual a tax collector, but some translations use the term publican. So just what is a tax collector? We've talked about this before. In our Matthew Bible study, we've talked about ta tax collector. Matthew himself, Levi, the traditional individual known as Levi, was a tax collector. 
Jesus was accused of being friends with tax collectors. Just recently, maybe if you've watched the Chosen series, you've seen kind of an illustration of just how much people despise this group of people, the tax collectors. They were a class of people that were despised and for several reasons. Number one, they were employed by the Roman government to collect various taxes and they were allowed to go above and beyond what Rome required. So if Rome required 10% of someone's income, they could ask for 15, keep the 5%, and give the 10% to Rome. They were allowed to keep any amount they collected over what Rome required, and they often would. Thus, they were extortionists. And the Pharisee, in his prayer, even said, thank you, God, I'm not an extortionist, demonstrating not only that they had a lack of loyalty to their countrymen, but a lack of morals because it's theft. It's theft. They were viewed because many of those who were in roles as tax collectors in the Palestinian area, they had maybe a Jewish or Hebraic heritage. And so they were looked at as traitors because here you have individuals that are getting in cahoots with the Roman Empire for their own gain at the expense of their expense of their fellow countrymen. And not only that, these taxes would go to the Roman Empire, the very empire that was oppressing them. So if you were a Jewish person living during this time, you thought it as I'm paying to be oppressed because that money would go to the Roman Empire to build roads and bridges and make the Roman Empire more wealthy and things like that. So Jesus picks the polar opposite to be contrasted with the Pharisee. I want to read this quote, though. This tax collector's response is so different than what probably individuals would think of when it came to them praying to God. Dwight Pentecost, I actually have this book. I've, I've owned this book for many years. It's written by a guy by the name of Dwight Pentecost, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, but he wrote this book called Lessons in Life from the Master Teacher and on the parables, and he wrote this quote on page 116 and 117. He says, the tax collector approached the place of prayer in quite a different attitude. First, he stood at a distance. He recognized that he was a sinner and unworthy to come into the presence of God. He dared not to even approach the temple where God was thought to be dwelling. Further, he would not even look up to heaven. This, again, was an outward sign of his recognition of his own unworthiness. And that's true. The last person on earth, the extortionist, the person who chose personal gain at the expense of fellow countrymen, becomes the one that actually has an attitude that Jesus is saying is more something we should emulate than the righteous Pharisee. Must have been shocking. The tax collector's attitude, the polar opposite of the Pharisee. One of the last things that Jesus says here, which must have been shocking, was this. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector is the one that's justified, not the Pharisee. 
shocking conclusion to this story to those who read it. And we've heard it so many times, it's not shocking to us, but it would be shocking to someone listening in this day and age. Something else I learned uh, this week, actually, in studying for this, and reading this book, Dwight Ar- or not Dwight Armstrong, I don't know where that came from, but Dwight Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost, there's not very many Dwights, I understand, you know, Dwight Armstrong was, was uh, one of the only other individuals named Dwight, but Dwight Pentecost, in his book, he actually goes into detail about something I never had considered before. And it's about something in regards to just how important the Day of Atonement was. And it has a relevancy to what the tax collector said in the parable. And I'm going to read this just real quick. And it's in regards to the day of, of a, the day of Atonement. And there's a connection between the Day of Atonement or the concept of atonement with King David and with this individual, this tax collector. He writes on, and I, I don't usually read, read from a book, but today I am just because I felt like it would be better explained by Mr. Pentecost here. He says, the offering on the Day of Atonement was national. It was for Israel as a nation. In contrast, if an individual sinned, he was restored to fellowship with the God against whom he had sinned by offering one of the sin offerings of Leviticus 4 and 5. The offerings of Leviticus 1 and th- one through 3 were express- expressions of worship and thanksgiving. And these offerings were an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The offerings of Leviticus 1 through 5 could benefit the individual only because of the national offering on the Day of Atonement. Without that national offering, the individual offerings would have been pointless. According to the law, the offerings were to be offered only for unintentional sins. That is, in regard to those offerings and sacrifices in the early chapters of Leviticus. In the case of a willful sin, one did not offer the prescribed individual sin offering. Rather, one put oneself under the blood of the Day of Atonement. David did this after his sin with Bathsheba, knowing he had committed a willful sin and that there was no prescribed offering, he fled to the atonement cover, crying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. That's from Psalms 51, 1 through 4, and verse 7. And putting himself, this is Dwight, uh, Dwight Pentecost talking again, and putting himself under the blood of the atonement cover, David once again experienced the joy of his salvation. When the tax collector in the parable prayed, Have mercy on me, a sinner, he was doing what David did. He was asking God to look on him as he looked on the atonement cover he was totally and completely reliant on God to forgive his sin and pleading with God understanding that there was no sacrifice that he himself could offer God to cover the sin but he would have to throw himself on the atonement on the mercy seat that was covered by blood and that was done for the nation of Israel And we see that there's a parallel here in this practice of the Day of Atonement, that covering 
that would have to be done year in, year out, year in, year out. You'd have to throw yourself onto that. And now Jesus Christ himself has done this once and for all, has covered our sin, and we are at the mercy of that. He was asking God to look on him as he looked on the atonement cover because the man took refuge under the propitiating blood. Christ declared that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. In the end, even in the Old Testament, individuals were completely at the mercy of God for forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness of sins. I want to actually skip a little bit here. So, in conclusion, this one's a little bit shorter. I'm going to skip my next section because if I get into that, I think I'll go over time. But in closing, I would like us to ask the question. Clearly, we know that this parable is all about pride and arrogance and a lack of self-dependency on Jesus Christ and God our Father. It's a focus on ourselves. It's an attitude problem that we all can have. We all can have that Pharisee that lives within us. I have two questions in closing. What is at the source of why humans have the tendency to sometimes think too highly of themselves over others? It's a loaded question. I think one obvious answer is pride, as I just mentioned. Greed. Arrogance, the vices of the flesh, right? But I think another reason is because oftentimes in this life, the standard in which we measure ourselves makes us think a lot highly of ourselves than what is really true. In the case of the Pharisee and his prayer, his standard of righteousness was to compare himself to other people, to the tax collectors, to man, to human metrics. And this is what gave him the confidence in his own abilities. Because according to him, well, look how good I am because I'm not like them. And so the standard, the metric that one is judging themselves off of is a human metric. And it makes, I think, in, to some extent, us overly confident in our own abilities. This is what gave him, the Pharisee in that case, the confidence in his own abilities. But Jesus demonstrates a different attitude that God treasures. One that chooses humility and dependence on God for righteousness. He didn't base it on human metrics or what they thought about him. That is, of course, Jesus himself and even the tax collector. He didn't base it on the standards of the group he belonged to. Jesus did not come and he did not care. Just like I mentioned earlier when people afar off were looking at Jesus and they were saying, here's this guy hanging out with tax collectors. Here's this guy that's not even, you know, he's supposed to be some righteous teacher, but he's not, even, he's not even fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. He could care less about the standards of the group. He could care less about the standards of the religious elite. He based it upon God's standards. And he was all righteous because he was sinless. And still yet, our sinless Savior had a humility himself. 
He didn't rely on special observances that he kept that were outside of Scripture. I want to consider a, an example from the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul, let's go to Philippians, the third chapter. We know that the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, someone that's highly educated. And in Paul, if you were to analyze, and people have done this before, he knew all the languages that were relevant to him, studied under a, a very, very high uh, known rabbi. He would be probably considered someone that would be a Ph.D. level in our modern world and his knowledge of the philosophies of the world and things like that. And someone with his degree of education and understanding would probably be set up in life, would probably have a high esteem, a lot of notoriety, people would support him. But he says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A powerful, powerful section of scriptures. Paul saying, I count all of it as rubbish to know Christ and the power of Christ. Second question, what areas, and this is a more personal question, what areas of our life do we struggle with pride? What areas of our life do we struggle with boasting or arrogance? And it's not something that has to be verbal. It's probably not. It's probably not something we verbalize and, 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 and we're overly confident in in a verbal way, but maybe subconsciously and mentally, our mindset. Is it knowledge in the Bible? Maybe we think we are superior in our knowledge of the Bible. Maybe it's our own righteousness that we do things better than others. Maybe we look at arrogantly our own obedience. That's a question that all of us have to ask ourselves. When we read the two individuals and about those two individuals, the Pharisee and the, the tax collector, where is our attitude? Where is our attitude? Do we throw ourselves at the mercy of God, acknowledge our shortcomings, acknowledge that only through Christ do we have anything of any righteousness. That our righteousness is not our righteousness, but it's the righteousness 
that is imputed to us through Jesus Christ himself and his sacrifice? That's the question that all of us have to answer. I want to leave us with this quote from James Denny, who was a 20th century Scottish preacher. He says, No man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. You can impress people with your cleverness or you can impress them with Jesus, but you can't do 